welcome to the Early Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Roper. I'm a certified midwives assistant and a neurodevelopmental delay therapist. I own a private therapy practice called Early Roots, where I specialize in working with children who have developmental delays. I primarily see children with social, emotional, behavioral, and learning difficulties. I also work part-time for midwifery practice in Colorado Springs called Mountain Miracles, where I assist at births and provide postpartum care to local moms and babies. Today's episode is going to build on my most frequently asked question, which is, can you help my child? I'm going to dive into the history of neurodevelopmental delay therapy and the research on primitive reflexes. Then I'm going to talk about the most common symptoms I see in the kids I work with and the benefits, limitations, and disadvantages of this type of therapy. First off, I specialize in working with children who have neurodevelopmental delay, or NDD. More recently, this term has been changed to neuromotor immaturity, or NMI. And this phrase simply refers to a child or adult who has immaturity in the functioning of their central nervous system. And this is a pretty broad, encompassing term. And in this episode, I'll get into how this relates and connects to other diagnoses like autism, ADHD, and so on. The central nervous system refers to our brain, spinal cord, and all of the nerves that connect our brain to our body. The central nervous system starts developing super early in pregnancy and continues to develop until we're in our mid-20s. And the really cool thing about this is that it follows a similar pattern in people. There are small variations between kids. Some develop faster than others, but for the most part, there is a very clear process and clear norms that children hit at different stages. The cool thing about this is that it makes it very easy to test. You can test things like primitive reflexes, balance and coordination, visual motor skills, fine motor skills, and you get very clear age norms. For example, babies are born with something called a Moro reflex, which is the infant version of our fight or flight response. And this reflex should disappear around four months of age, and it develops into a more advanced, dynamic stress response. So if you have an older child, say one who is six years old, and they still have their Moro reflex, that is a clinically significant indicator that their nervous system is immature. At least part of their nervous system is functioning at or below four months of age. And there are lots of reliable markers of central nervous system maturity. So if you take a child, you can test all of these things and get a pretty clear picture of the maturity or age that their nervous system is functioning at. And when you have multiple factors that are functioning below age level, we say that they have neurodevelopmental delay or neuromotor immaturity. And this line of research started a long time ago for sure as early as the 1960s and likely before them. There were a number of scientists and psychologists who began looking at children and connecting physical health and development with mental health and development. And in the mid-1970s, they started to look specifically at children with a previous learning disability diagnosis and compare their physical and physiological development to children without a diagnosed learning disability. 
And this research has continued to this day, with more and more evidence coming out about the connections between physical development and mental development. For the most part, we are still in the early, early stages of research on some of these things. Our understanding of trauma and its impact on the body has exploded recently, but our treatment protocols are still in their infancy. The understanding of primitive reflexes and developmental delays is also growing, but again, we're still in early stages of understanding. I think that in a hundred years, people will look back at this point in time and laugh at how archaic our practices and our research is. But thankfully, things are changing. Research is continuing to grow, and with that, improved testing and improved practices. And I will link some of the resources in the description for anyone who wants to dive into some of the research that we currently have. And this may sound really obvious to some people, but mental health is physical health. Our brain and physiology are physical, and our psychological well-being and our neurological health is very connected. You can't separate the brain from the body and put it in its own little box. And this connection is the most obvious during our early years. Brain development and body development are interconnected. The learning, quote-unquote, that we're doing in our infancy is basically learning how to control our bodies. Babies learn to sit, to crawl, to walk, to talk, all physical skills that provide the foundation on which the rest of learning is built. There is a big social aspect, too. There is a ton of research on attachment and trauma in our early years and how that impacts emotional and social development down the road. These things affect a lot of different neurological circuits like our arousal states, our attention and focus, our stress response, and more. And we like to look at things like our focus and attention circuit separately and say that those are a function of the brain, but they have their roots in physical and social development. When I'm looking at children, I look at these early developmental stages and skills. For example, if a child is struggling with learning to read, you can't say that they have a learning problem if they don't have the physical skills they need to read. They have to be able to hold their body still with minimal or no effort. They have to be able to control their eyes to converge and track with little to no effort. They have to be able to tune out irrelevant visual and auditory stimuli and tune into the task at hand. They have to have spatial skills that allow them to understand direction without thinking about it so that they can recognize the difference between B's, D's, P's, and so on. These are all physical skills that develop early in infancy and childhood, long before your child would be reading. And reading is a really easy, obvious example, but many of the kids that I work with struggle with more complex skills like social awareness, emotional maturity, and attention regulation. But just like reading, each of these skills has its roots in physical and social development. So let's look at how this connects to more traditional diagnoses like ADHD and autism. There is significant overlap between most childhood mental health diagnoses and NDD. There is actually a pretty significant overlap between lots of different childhood diagnoses, and it's becoming more and more common now to see kids with multiple diagnoses. I see a lot of kids with a combined autism ADHD diagnosis, or ADHD and dyslexia, or autism and anxiety, or ADHD and anxiety, 
Each of these diagnoses represent a spectrum of symptoms that can range from mild to severe and that can come in their own variety of combinations. And getting a good diagnosis can really help parents know what the problem is. It can be really helpful for making parents more empathetic and patient when their child is struggling, and it can make it easier to access support services in schools and help parents and kids not to feel so isolated. But it really doesn't tell you anything about why those symptoms exist in the first place and doesn't really tell you the best place to start to treat those symptoms. In another episode, I'll go into more detail on diagnoses and their history, benefits, limitations, and so on. But for now, it's important to understand that childhood mental health diagnoses are not as concrete as other medical diagnoses. It's not like getting strep throat, where you have limited symptoms and clear biological markers. For a diagnosis like ADHD or autism, you have a broad spectrum of symptoms, of severities and of contributing factors. And the process of diagnosing something like ADHD is different from the process of identifying NDD, even though there is a lot of overlap. I work with a lot of children who have a diagnosis of ADHD, autism, anxiety, sensory processing, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and so much more. But it's not a requirement. I work with many children who don't have a diagnosis and probably don't have severe enough symptoms to qualify for one, but they're still struggling with one or more areas of daily function. Regardless of their diagnosis or symptoms, I take all the children I see through the same testing protocols. I look at a lot of different areas of central nervous system function, including primitive and postural reflexes, visual motor skills, gross and fine motor skills, balance and coordination, laterality, and a lot more. I look at how well their brain and body are working together and where these kids got stuck. Then we focus on building those connections and those foundational pieces. This is just a different approach. Rather than using symptoms to guide a diagnosis, I use physical and physiological markers of maturity to guide a treatment plan. I'm also a huge believer in holistic and integrative care. The things that I work on are generally one piece to a much bigger puzzle. And for some kids, my piece is a really, really big piece of the puzzle, but for others, it's a much smaller piece. As with most things, it really depends on the individual. So let's jump into common symptoms. There's a really broad spectrum of symptoms that I see improve when we start maturing the nervous system. And I want to try to list out the most common improvements that I see. But before I do, please understand that NDD or NMI is not always the underlying cause of these symptoms. There can be multiple root factors that contribute to symptoms. Sometimes even when I'm working with a child, we don't know what is causing a symptom until we start working on something and we see what improves. And I can give you an example. Let's look at bedwetting in older children, say anybody beyond five or six years old. Bedwetting can happen for a variety of reasons. It can happen because children have something called a spinal gallant reflex that affects their ability to control their bladder during sleep. It can happen when children have a retained moro reflex and heightened anxiety and low body awareness. It can happen when children have dairy allergies or other food allergies. It can happen after a really traumatic event that causes regression. 
It can be related to hormone production, and some children will wet the bed until puberty, and it will all of a sudden clear up. And likely there are other reasons besides these that we don't even know about yet. And in this example, the two things that I would work on would be the spinal gallant reflex and the moro reflex. I've worked with a lot of children who bedwet, and when parents ask me about it, I always tell them that there's lots of things that contribute, and we may not know why until we try some of these things and see what works. Our brains and bodies are so multifaceted, and we have so many different things that contribute to mental and physical health and to these concerning symptoms. That's why taking a holistic approach and remaining open-minded is essential. So let's look at the most common symptoms I see. There are several categories, emotional, social, communication, sensory, body, behavioral, and academic. And the first few categories that I tend to lump together are social, emotional, and communication. And the most common things I see here are emotional immaturity, anxiety, extreme fears, anger, defiance, resistance, low frustration tolerance, low self-esteem, emotional flatness or difficulty identifying, experiencing, or expressing emotions, meltdowns, tantrums, and outbursts, obsessive compulsive tendencies, being overly excitable, hyperactive, difficulty with transitions and non-preferred activities, controlling behaviors, depressive symptoms, particularly in young children, tendencies to fixate or obsess over certain things, difficulty making friends, difficulty recognizing other people's body language, poor attachments, tendency to connect with children that are younger or older, but struggling to maintain peer relationships, poor eye contact, poor verbal and nonverbal communication. And typically when it comes to communication, the things I see the most improvement with have to do with emotions and social awareness. For example, eye contact and identifying emotions would fall into that category. Sometimes the speech clarity and vocabulary improve too. But oftentimes if a child is struggling with things like speech clarity, they'll get a lot more benefit out of speech therapy. A lot of the children I work with also do speech therapy. And in Colorado, a lot of speech services are covered by the state, so that might be one of the influencing factors. But in my experience, as long as children aren't getting overloaded doing speech therapy, it can be a really helpful addition to what we're doing. It can also help us to track progress. Some children will hit a wall with speech progress until we clean up some of their reflexes and build some of these body connections, and then their speech progress will explode. The next category encompasses the sensory, body, and behavioral categories. And the most common symptoms I see here are sensory hypersensitivity or hyposensitivity. So kids that overreact to loud noises, bright lights, commotion, movement, touch, taste, pain, even smell. And some kids are the opposite. They're hyposensitive to these things. So they have very flat reactions. Often kids are picky eaters or sensitive to certain tastes, textures, or smells. I also see things like hyperactivity, distractibility, daydreaming, difficulty sitting still, difficulty navigating new environments, problems with spatial and body awareness, tendency to be in other people's spaces or feel very insecure when people are in their space, getting overwhelmed in crowds or with unexpected situations, 
poor balance and coordination, poor hand-eye coordination, tendency to move really fast and move a lot. Some kids who move a lot may actually seem very coordinated until you challenge certain parts of their balance or ask them to do something slowly. Then you'll see that controlling or moving their body is actually very difficult for them. Other symptoms would include poor body awareness, things like bedwetting, stool withholding, gastrointestinal or digestive problems. I have even seen improvements with allergy and asthma symptoms, although usually if those things are present, I recommend families work with somebody else in addition to help manage those things. And the last category is academics, and this would include more traditional areas of cognitive function too, like memory and planning. And the most common symptoms I see here are difficulty with reading and writing, poor reading comprehension, difficulty reading or writing and thinking at the same time, difficulty copying things, difficulty with math, poor pencil grip, hand cramps with writing, headaches or muscle tension with school, hard time following multiple instructions, poor memory, poor planning skills, poor impulse control, poor posture, difficulty sequencing sentence structure, poor grammar and punctuation, and sometimes spelling. So spelling is kind of a funny one because sometimes I see really great improvements in spelling, but not always. Spelling in English is kind of a nightmare. Our language breaks all of its own rules, and for some kids, spelling will never be intuitive. If you hadn't noticed, this is a lot of symptoms, and I'm sure I'm missing some really important ones. You can see how there is so much overlap between NDD and other diagnoses. Now again, please understand that just because a child has one or more of these symptoms does not automatically mean that they have NDD or that this type of therapy would be beneficial for them. There can be a lot of things that contribute to these symptoms, and part of my job is to look at each individual child and work with their parents to make a plan specifically for them. For a lot of children, this includes things like family therapy for the parents, or nutritional support from a naturopath or functional medicine doctor, or trauma-based therapies for the children. What we add and when we add these things is really, really important, and I don't have all the answers, but I am a committed, lifelong student, and I plan on spending my life learning as much as I can about lots of different areas of health. And I feel very passionately about helping connect families with other therapists and professionals who can provide the support that I cannot. So let's look at the people I don't work with. There are people who may have many of these symptoms who would not be good candidates for this type of program, at least not with me. I don't work with anyone who has a traumatic brain injury. After a TBI, many people will have significant regressions, including things like the reemergence of primitive reflexes and regression in these brain and body functions. Part of the reason for this is that these things are part of our brain's survival mechanism. It's believed that these reflexes come back as a protective factor since part of the brain was damaged. I don't work with people in these situations because I don't have enough training or experience to feel comfortable. I also think that success with this population is very difficult to predict. However, there are some people who are NDD therapists who have additional education and experience who may take on people with traumatic brain injuries and they may be able to have some success. The second population that I don't typically work with is children with genetic syndromes like Down syndrome. 
and this is for similar reasons. Many children with genetic syndromes have retained reflexes and other developmental delays, and for some of them, these things are protective, and we won't ever be able to see big improvements. I do make exceptions to this, depending on the child and their specific condition. My main hesitation is that I don't ever know how a child will respond and if we will see any progress or not. It's a lot of time and money for parents to invest in something that may only have slight benefits. I usually just discuss all of these things with parents and let them make the decision. I have worked with some children in this category who do make some improvements, but it's always a big question mark. Next would include children with severe neurological or psychiatric problems. This would include children in psychosis, children who are actively suicidal or homicidal, and children with active seizures. Children in these situations need to get these things under control first before we do anything. I will consider working with these children if they have been stable for a year and if they have a doctor or therapist that they're continuing to work with who is monitoring these things. Anytime that you're working on the brainstem or the stress response, you want to be very gentle and careful that you're not doing anything to overload kids. I tend to be pretty conservative in my practice and don't want to risk doing anything that is going to aggravate more serious conditions. The next category is more vague, but I don't work with children who are in an unstable environment or who are going through a big life upheaval. Something like a parental divorce, a death in the family, a child who is in the process of being adopted, a child who is in the process of a big move or other stressful life event. And these things are all evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis, but it's very difficult to make progress on a stress response if a child is in a stressful home environment. It's also not uncommon for us to pause in the middle of therapy when something like this pops up. And again, this is always done on a case-by-case -case basis. Some kids get very dysregulated by something like a move. Others do really well. We may pause what we're doing or pause increasing what we're doing for a period of time around a big life change. Same thing for a death in the family. I've worked with many children who lost someone close to them in the middle of therapy. Our focus changes to managing that grief for a period of time, and then we'll get back into NDD therapy later. It's also difficult if parents have uncontrolled anxiety, depression, or other mental health disorder. Now, the key here is uncontrolled. I work with a lot of families where one or both parents have difficulty with ADHD, anxiety, or some other struggle. If the parents are getting help themselves, it can actually be hugely beneficial for the whole family. They don't have to be perfect before I can start working with kids, but there needs to be some level of stability and consistency. This is also why I think a holistic approach is important. The families that I see that do the best usually do have parents who are in or have been in some sort of family or individual therapy themselves. And it's not always necessary, but it can be a really great advantage for some families. It also doesn't have to be traditional therapy. There are some really amazing parenting coaches and family support groups in churches and community centers that do the same thing. If parents aren't already doing it, I usually recommend that they reach out for this type of support at some point in the process. The kids that I would not take would be ones in homes that were actively unsafe, where children are consistently exposed to any sort of violence. These situations are similar to the kids with serious psychiatric problems. This is something that has to be taken care of first. Safety has to be the priority.
So let's look at the disadvantages and limitations of this type of therapy. In order to understand this, let me walk you through what NDD therapy entails on a day-to-day -day basis. Once I do an assessment and figure out what areas are working and what areas are not, I give parents an exercise that they do at home that targets these different areas. And I always tell families it's a big commitment because it's something that has to happen every day, particularly if we're working on the stress response. Consistency is important. If you start and stop, a lot of kids will get really dysregulated and they won't make good progress. The nice thing is that most of the exercises are relatively short, usually five to ten minutes a day. So it's not like parents have to dedicate an hour a day to therapy. Small amounts consistently seem to be the most effective for most kids. And this whole process is super slow. The average time I spend with a child is around two years. Some are quicker than that, um, but some are a lot longer. It's not a quick fix by any means. And typically the kids who have more severe symptoms take longer and we have to move more gently, but not always. Sometimes kids who I think will fly through the process end up trickling. This process requires consistency and patience. It also isn't a magic fix if there are lots of other things going on. Parenting styles, parental mental health, family dynamics, physical health, these things all play a big role. Sometimes we have to incorporate help from other sources in order to see the best progress. There is also a limitation on the improvement of really severe symptoms. I have worked with several children who are very low functioning. These may be children who are on the more severe end of the autism spectrum, um, or I've also worked with several children who haven't been able to receive a proper diagnosis, but they're very low functioning. In these cases, there seems to be a limit to the improvements we make. It's always difficult in the beginning to set expectations to parents. Sometimes we make good improvements and sometimes we don't go anywhere. In cases like this, I'm usually willing to work with children and see what happens, but it usually seems like there's a big piece that we're missing. I hope that one day we'll have a better understanding of how to treat these problems, but right now what I have to offer is more of a band-aid at best. If any of you out there listening know of any people who are having success with kids who fall into this low-functioning category, then please reach out to me. I would love to have more resources for families. Same thing for other helpful resources, specifically if you offer family or parenting therapy or classes. I have a lot of families who could benefit from that, and most of my favorite therapists are full. Since most of this program is done at home, I only meet with families every couple of months to tweak what we're doing. Because of this, I can support a really high client load, and I would love to have multiple therapists and family support resources because a lot of them fill up fast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a child you're concerned about, then please reach out to me. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something helpful.